I remember the first time that I recognized implicit racism in my own behavior. I was traveling home from Texas to Georgia to visit my family. Chris hadn't come with me this time, so I was traveling by myself. And because I was traveling by myself, I had chosen to fly instead of drive. The flight was forgettable. It went well. I got landed in Georgia safely, and as I exited the plane and walked out of the gate into the Atlanta airport, I was confronted by a sea of black faces. I joined the throng, and I could feel my shoulders shrinking as I quickened my pace and hurried to the baggage claim. On another day, I might not have noticed this reaction, but I had started a journey, a journey that started with reading James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. I was beginning to further educate myself on our nation's history with racism. And so on this day, I was uncomfortably awake to the previously unconscious and biased reaction that I was having. Now, on that day, it wasn't only race. I was also a woman traveling alone, and the faces I remember from that day were largely male as well as black. But race was undeniably a part of why I walked around on high alert that day. In that moment, I was a little surprised at myself. I had been raised well, taught that we are all beloved children of God, but my body, my physical reaction, told me a story I hadn't realized that I believed. It told me the lie that black was scarier than white. This experience was a paradigm shift for me. It let me know that racism was not just a hateful ideology espoused by a few or expressed by an older generation brushed off with an airy, oh, that's just their time. Racism was part of the air we breathed. It had infected me, and it wasn't enough for me to simply have been raised well. I needed to work on my own implicit bias. I needed to work to become anti-racist. Now, this is a journey that many people have been taking in recent years. The, church, the Episcopal Church, our diocese, and our church, Old Donation, have all begun this journey. It's an important journey to take because we might find ourselves like I did, unconsciously standing in the shoes of the tenants from this parable. This parable is a hard one because it is openly harsh and pretty transparent. Jesus was undeniably addressing the chief priests and religious leaders who confronted him after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They had asked him by whose authority he taught and performed these miracles. Jesus pointedly did not answer them. But then he tells this series of three parables, of which this is the second. And Matthew's retelling of the story makes it clear that the role of the tenants is filled by the religious leaders. 
Now, what this parable does not say, what I don't want you to hear, is that Israel will be replaced by Christianity. This is a bias that has wormed its way into Christianity over the centuries. Jesus and all of his followers were Jews. And though Jews and Christians did split down the road, Jesus didn't teach supersessionism, that Christians would replace the Jews. Instead, this parable teaches us not to assume that we know best, not to place ourselves as the go-between for the kingdom of God. With this parable, Jesus is tapping into a long history that cast Israel as God's vineyard. Looking at Jesus' own ministry that drew both Jews and Gentiles, we might expand the vineyard metaphor to include all people. Both Israel and us as Christians have a history as a vineyard of both fruitfulness and barrenness. Isaiah lamented the vineyard that yielded sour grapes. We, as Christians, have our own particularly sour grapes in the form of the Crusades, colonialism, and enslavement, all of which were carried out with the sanction of the church. But in this parable, the vineyard doesn't appear to be barren or sour. It seems to be fruitful as we have also been in our better moments. The problem is with the tenants who will not release the fruit of the kingdom. We might all find ourselves stepping into this role at one point or another, often without the exaggerated malice that's portrayed in this parable. I would guess that most of the religious leaders themselves would not exhibit such malice on a person-to-person basis. They were probably raised well, like we were. But there is something in us that leads to the type of domination that we can see throughout our history. Regardless of our upbringing and our good intentions, we tend to exclude what God has called good. This is the problem that we have always faced as followers of God. When we attempt to be intermediaries, to order and cultivate the garden that God has already planted in each of us, we're prone to get it wrong. The good news of this parable is that we don't have to be the intermediaries. God doesn't need any tenants. After he has told the story, Jesus quotes from the Psalms, Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. When we hear this, we're prone to fall right back into our habits as tenants. We think the chief priests and the religious leaders rejected Jesus, therefore they are dashed upon that stone. But such thinking is to forget the parable that Jesus just told. The cornerstone crushes the old model. No tenants are needed. Instead, the kingdom of God is anywhere where people produce the fruit of the kingdom. It's not ours to judge. We are simply called to bear fruit and to shed the tendencies that would make us tenants over a garden that God has already worked and called good. 
because those tendencies are frighteningly real. Think of how easily our own history has been peppered with bloodshed and hate and fear. When we know that we are created good and that the average person wants what is best for the people around them, if we know that to be the truth, then it's time for us to come together as a community and examine the unconscious assumptions that we make, the ways hidden even to us that we allow fear to chase out love. Have we unconsciously created barriers that prevent the people of God from bearing fruit or giving their fruit to God? I ask this knowing that we do not have the power to fully block the growth of the kingdom of God. People can bear fruit regardless of what another person may or may not allow. Each person retains their own dignity and fruitfulness. But can we teach ourselves not to get in the way, even if we don't mean it? Can we break those barriers down that we don't know are even there and make room for all people to flourish? In the words of our baptismal covenant, may our answer be, we will, with God's help. Amen.